From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is Next Round, a VinePair podcast conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we move forward as a drinks business following the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm talking with Alexi Cashin, co-founder and CEO of Elenteni Imports. Alexi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Zach. Appreciate being here. So let's start with a hopefully simple question. What exactly does Elenteni Imports do? Uh, great question. Elenteni Imports is named after my business partner, Tim Elenteni. And the two of us started our business uh, exactly 10 years ago in New York City. We set out, both of us previously were working in wine wholesale <clears throat> at Palaner Selections and then wanted to start a business in logistics and specifically, you know, kind of to compete with some of the other quote unquote clearing houses. Um, so we, we were keen on exploring, you know, how do you set up a service where you can help people facilitate their distribution sales, order fulfillment, manage their inventory, help them with their international freight logistics and freight forwarding um, and brand registrations across the country. So it's basically, I like to tell people what our clients do is that they do all the sourcing and all the selling and we do everything in between. So so you kind of work with with largely with, uh, I guess, what most people who are familiar with the wine industry would think of as as importers and distributors who are looking to bring wine into the country. And so you're, you're sort of, do you, do you kind of help from, you know, sort of the, the moment the wine leaves the cellar to the moment at a, the, uh, the winery or wherever to the moment it arrives in the States or, or how does that work? Yeah. So our, essentially our clients are absolutely right. By and large, they are U.S. importers. A couple of them are some, sometimes our clients don't necessarily have an importation license. They're engaging us to help them with some of the federal levels of compliance, but by and large, our clients are U.S.-based importers. So the first service that we offer is how to get wine from its point of origin to the U.S. and into the correct warehouse that it's supposed to go. So that's our freight forwarding service. And we actually work with other freight forwarders that we um, help consolidate product, pick up, pick up the winery, consolidate to port. We manage all the insurance, the consolidation, the drayage, uh, trucking to warehouse, pay for all the customs, taxes and duties, and then sell that freight service. And so that's a service that we offer across the country to any U.S. importer. For those importers, we can also help them with foreign exchange payment solutions. So you know, they're buying their wines directly from the suppliers. And though we've helped them with just the logistics, we could also help them uh, on actually currency foreign exchange payments for for those those payments to their suppliers. And then for a smaller subset of customers, we also offer a distribution service. So in that service, we are actually licensed as a wholesaler uh, ourselves. And we're a wholesaler in the states of New York, New Jersey, Illinois, California, Colorado, and Washington, D.C. So in those six states, we actually function on the second tier of the three-tier industry as the distributor. And so for a smaller host of companies, we are managing all of their day-to-day operation, um, inventory management, order fulfillment, daily price filing, working with their sales reps, you know, logistics, uh, reconciliations, and then obviously managing all of those third-party expenses. Okay. So I'm guessing that probably the bulk of what you work with in terms of wine coming into the country is coming in from, has been coming in from Europe, right? That's, is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. And so obviously, you know, with what happened in 
Italy and France and and most other European countries at the peak of the uh, or at least the first peak of the COVID crisis. I think my sense is that here from here in the U.S. that that a lot of things like exporting were basically shut down. Is that is that what happened? And and how was that period of time for for you and, and your business? So it didn't shut down entirely. Uh, I remain astounded about that. Um, not just the U.S., but other countries, even including Italy, who was who was just really ravaged really early on by COVID. They remained operable, and so you know, with regards to like logistics and freight forwarding, uh, all of those industries, trucking, you know, still remained operable. Obviously, there was a, a limitation on capacity and also equipment. But I want to back up and say that, you know, that aside, sort of our points of origin and, and any potential challenges with, uh, with coordinating these freight logistics needs um, from Europe, for example, we actually struggled more so initially from the slowdown from Chinese exports, because when China had a slowdown of exporting, that created a significant uh, reduction of equipment. So like containers, oh, like you think okay. of the 40 foot, you know, metal container, yeah. They just weren't, sh- you know, they, those those vessels were empty. There just were not enough containers to to honor the lanes that those ocean freight liners are accustomed to, you know, uh, basically shipping heavy or, or shipping coal. So we were really struggling that because China slowed down, that created like a huge ripple of effect in Europe, where at one point it's starting to improve. It's not all the way improved. Uh, but that the capacity for ocean freight liners, that there was like 50% of the ocean freight liners that were just idle. So sitting oh, out wow. there in the ocean, they there's just not enough freight moving globally for them to operate. So they're just idle. So that that's a really impressive statistic when you think of like half of the globe's ocean freight liners just hanging out there. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like maybe through some combination of recovery in maybe in China and in, to some extent in Europe that 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 element is maybe loosening up. But but at the same time, I'm wondering, you know, you guys function as you said as a as a wholesaler in a few markets and, and certainly work with wholesalers all over the country. What does demand look like right now? I mean, for specifically for imported wine, is it are you guys seeing a a significant change or, or reduction in what people are, are looking to import? So we're challenged as an industry, as you very well may know, from the tariffs which remain in place. Um, and so because the focal point and the countries of origin uh, from which we most typically import are European countries that are affected by these um, U.S.-imposed tariffs, it's been challenging all year. So I will say that we have seen a significant slowdown year to date, not just because of COVID-19, um, which has just represented a, a really deep challenge in my business um, personally. Uh, just to give you an example, back in October of 2019, when the tariffs first went into effect, you know, because we're shipping wine at its origin, like it hit us immediately. Like we lost like 30% of the volume of the orders in the pipeline just completely vanished or canceled. So like we had a really, really rough Q4 and then Q1 sort of eked along, but we expected it to eke along. I'll say that like April was strangely a little bit, um, impressed me a little bit more than I was expecting. So like in terms of just container shipping volumes, we saw a slightly, uh, a slightly higher amount of volume in April, just this past spring. 
which, you know, is confounds me too, because obviously there's restaurants in most major cities are, are shut down. Um, and, you know, distributors are kind of holding tight with the inventory that they're sitting on. And then of course, retail is doing its best to grow strong, or especially the retailers that are able to reach people at home. Uh, but, you know, at some point people run out of wine, like they, they need to have the bread and butter products that they rely on for these sales. And so, you know, so we, we had like a little bit of consistency in April, but for May and June, it's, it's looking pretty low. And is, is your sense that that is just people that, 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 that the basic, you know, the curtailing of the on-premise channel means that for a lot of smaller importers and distributors and just brands that are not, you know, grocery store wines, there's essentially little or no demand or, or, or is there, is there another dynamic at play here that I'm not seeing? It's little or no demand. It's little or no demand. And I think just the, uh, the conservative nature that most people I think too, are trying to figure out, you know, how do I just freeze and regroup and figure out, you know, how to file for these various uh, funds coming from the government and, you know, where's my cash coming from? Um, you know, wine's very expensive. It's also very yeah. heavy. So it's very expensive to ship. Uh, so it's a very, you know, low margin business um, economically overall, which presents challenges on people's cash flow for sure. So I, I think, yes, the, the demand slowdown has been obviously the the huge impetus for this, but I think that people are also just acting conservatively and they're, they're, you know, trying to work through inventory that they have um, or the wines that they are buying. I think that the real thing that we're going to start to see is just the price point shift. So gotcha. when, like when we started the business in 2010, you know, it was just right after the economic crisis. And, um, you know, we, we definitely noticed that the wine industry by and large had that, that like mid tier had kind of totally dropped out that there were, um, you know, there were that, that sort of 25 to 40 price point uh, retail per bottle really had fallen out and that it's just all about the, the lower value, higher volume opportunities. But that being said, I talked to a retailer the other day in New Jersey who was astounded at like her 25 to $40 per bottle price point and how it's completely continued to surge for her. And just that there's a socioeconomic disparity in terms of people who either have or haven't been affected by this horrible virus and their ability to just keep buying what they like. It just gets shipped to their home. Well, and it's also one of those things, yeah, you're right, you know, that that since so much consumption has shifted home, there are still lots of people out there who presumably want to drink good wine. They're just not drinking it in restaurants or, or wine bars anymore. They're If they're drinking it, they're drinking it at home. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I think that the people have a, a potential... Um, you know, if, if they personally aren't being affected economically that, you know, sure, that they're happy to continue to buy that full retail price because they're not paying that extra markup that, that maybe they're accustomed to in an on-premise rest, restaurant setting. So I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned earlier that one of the, one of the, you know, complicating and, and additional challenges for what you're dealing with is a, as a business and within the industry is, are the tariffs. Has there been any conversation about trying to get them reduced or repealed? I mean, I, I would, I will say that I have paid a little bit of attention, but obviously there are a lot of other things on my mind right now. And so I don't know if within the industry, there's still any hope of getting them lessened or repealed other than that they weren't, you know, expanded as we feared uh, at the beginning of this year. I don't know. What, what is the state of that right now? Do you know? 
Um, I do. So I, uh, I actually was speaking to Ben um, NF today, who's the president of the U.S. Wine Trade Alliance. Okay. He also owns Tribeca Wine Merchants in New York City. And uh, I have spent a good amount of time with that organization, which are you know friends of mine throughout the industry who thankfully have donated the time, the time out of the goodness of their hearts to creating this organization. I personally was very active in, and in January went to Washington and worked with Harry Root and Eric Segelbaum uh, and Kate Laughlin to, you know, really, and Kevin Rapp, sorry, um, to just to, to knock on doors and talk to as many congressional leaders as we possibly could. And we learned a lot in that experience. And so since then, this organization started, it kind of sprung from uh, a Facebook group that, um, you know, anyone in the industry is welcome to join as well. But uh, so the U.S. the U.S. Wine Trade Alliance is, you know, has hired lobby firms to help position our industry more favorably, because unfortunately, like, you know, the larger businesses in the organization that potentially have the deeper pockets to kind of pay for these type of uh, lobby firms, they're not as incentivized because, you know, for those of us that are really impeded by tariffs, uh, the smaller businesses, it is something that is unfortunately it's up to us. It's sort of uh, a do or die and <laughs> no one's going to gotcha. come to bat for us except for us. So, uh, so that's been really wonderful to unite with, uh, with a good team of folks who are both raising money, um, have hired a lobby firm, actually two at this point to try to negotiate our position at the industry. So as of today, where we stand today's June 10th, there was, uh, there is Apparently, the USTR, the United States Trade Representative, is opening up another portal to leave comments. Hmm. So we learned about that. We learned about that in January. And unfortunately, our industry didn't know anything about this whole USTR comment period the first time this went around the horn. So actually, back in the spring of 2019, there was this public commentary period where anyone you know, can leave your public voice and message to the, to the USTR and legally they have to review every single one before they make decisions. So they have these open public commentary periods and then they close and then they have 30 days to make their decision. So that whole process happened unbeknownst to any of us in the industry. And then in August of 2019, they settled on making the changes for the tariffs that then went into place in October this past fall. So learning that, Johnny, come lately, we did not want to repeat those steps. And so there was yet again a new commentary period because the USTR has to take a look at tariffs, any live tariffs every you know 120 days, um, basically. So in January, there was a really vibrant couple of weeks where our industry was um, both commenting feverishly on this online portal, as well as a lot of people went to Washington there was a public hearing for the digital services tax issue, which was potentially going to impact a tax on champagne, which did not go into effect. And so our industry took an opportunity to show up in droves and speak about uh, against the digital services tax against champagne. And also not to mention, you know, um, trying to combat the, the other tariffs that were in place for, you know, other European wines that had been that went into effect in October. So we are going to come up on another commentary period where it's going to be really, really important for anyone who cares about this industry and small business to leave their comments. And the thing that we've learned is it's really important to not just say, 
you know, I hate tariffs. They're unfair. Like nobody likes tariffs. Um, you know, this is a bipartisan issue. Like it's, it's, you know, nobody likes them, but everyone in Washington is relieved that this longstanding Airbus matter between Boeing and Airbus is, um, has finally come to a head and that there's like some mechanism in place to try to resolve what was like a decade long issue between these large aviation companies. So the important thing to understand is that when we make comments this go around the summer, again, it's like on or about June 23rd, is not to just say that we stand against tariffs, but just to say, look, we understand that these tariffs are in place and that, you know, nobody likes it, but they're in place for a good reason. It's just killing wine. Like, just please take wine off the carousel because, you know, unlike, you know, Zara, for example, it's like a EU-based company that has EU-based manufacturers and storefronts that are owned by, you know, European business owners. Like, that's not like, yes, that's hurting the EU. Whereas with the U.S. Um, and our three-tier system of alcohol post-prohibition, you can't be a foreign entity and own a U.S.-based business. There's, there's a three-tier system in place that's, that says that you can't. So, like, by taxing wine, you're hurting three levels of U.S.-based businesses, and you're just, you're just not hurting the EU as it was meant to do. I guess probably the last question I have for you, sort of in addition to the challenges that, that tariffs continue to pose, the challenges that, you know, diminished demand, especially because of basically closed on-premise channels or, or greatly curtailed on-premise channels. Like, what is what is the move going forward? Like, how how are you trying to essentially, I mean, I guess, keep your business alive? That's a little bit of a of a stark question. But I suppose in general, like, you know, what do you what do you envision in the next three to six months? Do you think that that with some, you know, with reopening happening in some fashion in some places that that the on-premise channel will will sort of pick back up enough to to bolster things or 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 do you just see that some of the the companies you work with on the US side are are doing a better job of getting into retail or online um, sales or like how what, what's happening? What do you see going forward? Yeah, I, I mean, what keep, is going to potentially keep my business alive, I think, is a different answer than <clears throat> what I see happening for other sectors of business within our industry. But in terms of, you know, predictions, gosh, it's it's all but impossible. But the one thing that I'm paying attention to and the McKenzie Mackenzie put out a, a great report that just sort of gave an estimate, uh, a prediction from uh, each of the industries in terms of those that it will take the longest to come back. And so gas and oil was number one. Number two was travel and tourism. So travel and tourism is so, so vitally important to hospitality, to, you know, to, to the hotels, to, you know, just people traveling and, and, going out to dinner and eating and drinking and, you know, meeting up with clients and business or, uh, or tourism where you're on vacation and you're celebrating and you're, you know, inviting more. So because travel is going to be so restricted, like, and the projection per McKenzie was that that would be like the earliest that travel would come back would be Q2 of 2021. So it's like, all right, that's basically a year from now. Um, and so I, I think that because of the lack of travel, it's going to trickle down and, and whatever gains that restaurants try to make in terms of coming back, it's going to just continue to be hampered, unfortunately, by the lack of travel and mobility um, that we're accustomed to. Gotcha. For me personally, I mean, I think trying to keep the lights on is, is more just about 
trying to meet our customers where they are. And so continuing to do what we do best and, and trying to strategize with them and help them with freight solutions that are more cash flow economical as opposed to just bottom line economical um, or, uh, you know, helping preserve their margins in different ways. You know, all the same conversations that we have with our customers each and every day, we have to just keep doing it. We just have to be patient. Well, Alexi, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that between all these challenges and everything that's been difficult about this industry over the last few months and, and for in your case, you know, in some cases for over a half a year now um, with this with these tariffs uh, that at a minimum, we're, we're kind of building uh, some resilience into the industry that, that will serve us well when whenever the next crisis emerges, because it seems kind of inevitable at this point that it will. I know, I know. Unfortunately, we're all just getting a lot of thick skin right now uh, and just trying to practice new muscles. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and be well. Thanks, Zach. I've appreciated being here. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Fair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.